Hello, this is Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology review podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Please keep in mind that these podcasts are for medical education only, not to diagnose that weird thing on your eyes. We're ophthalmology residents who figured reviewing for clinic, OCAPs, or boards is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we'll review a high-yield topic and flesh out the why and the how. Today, we're reviewing retina fundamentals. So Ben, what'd you have in mind for this? We're going to start with the anatomy of the retina, focusing on the macula, and then we're going to go through those pesky layers of the retina and try to make it more clear, not something we just have to memorize for those pimp questions in clinic. So in that case, where does the macula start and stop? Maybe to help better understand where the macula is, is to go over what macula means. Okay, Ben. What (laughs) is macula? Macula means spot in Latin. One way to think about it with a more commonly used term is immaculate conception, which in a sense means spotless conception. Or, you know, you can think about the macules that we talked about in dermatology. And the reason it's called a, a macula lutea, which is like the full name of the macula, is because it turns out when you die or when the eye dies, that the macula looks like this really obvious yellow spot in the center. Why do you think it's yellow, Andrew? Because of all the lutein and xanthine. Yeah, that's that's yellow. Lutea, lutein means yellow. And that's what makes those, um, those pigments really relevant in the most common macular condition out there, macular degeneration. The other thing to know is that the histologist macula is when the ganglion cell layer starts to have more than one layer, so two or more layers. So the edge of the macula is defined as having two or more layers, and then eventually it becomes up to ten layers at the fovea. Yeah, between fovea and foveola, which one is the smaller one? Yeah, foveola is smaller because it has a la, so it's more diminutive. Other important things to know about the fovea is that there's a few rods at the edge of the fovea, but that's more in the parafovea, which we don't have to go into, but the fovea is mainly cones. And then one more thing is that it's important to know that it's about 4 millimeters temporal to the optic disc and 0.8 millimeters inferior to the disc. So if you're having a hard time finding the fovea, we want to find the foveal light reflex, keep in mind that, you know, it's a couple of diameters over, and more importantly, it's a little bit inferior to the disc, and that can help you find it or confirm to yourself that there's an absence of a foveal light reflex. So as far as the sizes of these things go, the fovea is about a millimeter and a half in diameter, which is about one disc diameter. Smaller than that is the foveola, which is much smaller. It's actually like a third of a millimeter or one-fifth of the fovea itself. And you can go with Ben's thing with a lie at the end of the foveola being diminutive, and that would clue you in as to which one's smaller. And from there, the words just get smaller and smaller. Like yeah. an umbo is shorter than a foveola, and that is itself just 0.15 millimeters. So you've got one and a half millimeters for the fovea, 0.35 millimeters for the foveola, and 0.15 millimeters for the umbo. Anything else we should know about those? Yeah, there's just um, one more thing about the foveola is that the foveola is where there's absolutely no rods in the center. It's just cones. And beyond that, it's actually just red-green cones that are really tightly packed in the center. Um, one way that you can prove to yourself that there's no rods in the foveola and that there's just cones is to go stargazing. If you try to look at a faint star directly in the center of your vision, you're not going to be able to see it. But if you look a little bit off-center, then you can use your more dim light, sensitive rods to see it. 
That's that's Temecula, you know? I mean, there's a paraphobia and the periphobia, but, I mean, what, what happens there? Right, Andrew? What happens there? Oh, God, but I need to know the millimeters. Let's start in the out. <laughs> the umbo is 0.15, and then the next Matryoshka doll is the foviola, which is 0.35. The fovea is 1.5. How many distameters is that, Andrew? One distameter. The paraphobia is 2.5, and then the periphobia, which includes the whole macula, total is 5.5. And that's everything that we need to know about the sizes of the fovea, macula, and its components. Next, we'll move on to the layers of the retina. What are these different layers we're going to talk about? There's so many layers, Andrew. How, how, how the heck are we going to remember what the layers of the retina are? What, what, what do? What do? So, uh, one way to remember it anatomically is that the retina is a neurosensory tissue, and you can think of it as a neurosensory sandwich. So, there's the neuro component on the top, which is the nerve fiber layer and the cell bodies that feed it, the ganglion cell layer. And then on the bottom are the photoreceptors, because that's the sensory part. So, the neuro ganglion cell layer and the nerve fiber layer and the bottom which is the photoreceptors and in between that you have your like plexiform and nuclear layer so the inner is closer to the cornea so that is the inner plexiform layer and then the inner nuclear layer Uh, again it goes from nerve fiber layer to ganglion cell layer to inner plexiform layer to inner nuclear layer and then you just have your outer plexiform and outer nuclear layer and they have your photoreceptors. And then you have your RP and Brooks. Because we know that that feeds the photoreceptors that has lined to everything else. What a yummy cake. There's also um, the limiting membranes we should throw in there. There's only one, only one of them is a true membrane, the internal limiting membrane, which is made up of the foot plates and the Mueller cells, which to remind you, Mueller cells are the supportive cells that run all the way through all these layers of the retina. So the internal limiting membrane is uh, the foot plates, little feet of the Mueller cells that are all attached together. And that can be, we'll talk more about that later. And the external limiting membrane is just what it looks like when the Mueller cells attach to the photoreceptors. They don't actually make a true membrane. It's not something that you could peel even if you wanted to try to peel that. Um, but it like appears histologically and on OCT, so we talk about it. Um, let's uh, let's do this from an- anterior to posterior. Okay. And that way we won't be bouncing back and forth so much. Right. What's an ILM? The ILM you were talking about, you were gonna say something about. Yeah, it it's like surgically relevant. The ILM. Um, it. it it's a source of confusion for junior residents sometimes because in younger people, it'll cause this really shiny reflective stuff to be apparent when they look at the fundus, but that's really just a natural ILM. It becomes duller over time as we age. And then just lurking underneath that thin sheet is the nerve fiber layer. And then underneath that is are the ganglion cell layers. So for those, um, what you often want to look for is whether they're apparent on your OCT RNFL to make sure there aren't any artifacts. You want to make sure that your software is segmenting things appropriately. Otherwise, their retina might look perfectly fine and you can't explain their vision loss until you realize they have no nerve fiber layer. 
So the nerve fiber layer itself is the beginning of the optic nerve. Therefore, just as lesions of the optic nerve can give an afferent pupillary defect, lesions of the nerve fiber layer can give an afferent pupillary defect. For example, retinal artery occlusions will cause injury to the nerve fiber layer and subsequent thinning because the nerve fiber layer relies on superficial vascular supply in contrast with deep vascular supply, such as from the choroid, which we'll discuss later. Similarly, Optic neuropathies that cause nerve fiber loss and therefore a relative afferent pupillary defect will, be, will cause observable nerve fiber layer thinning on things like OCT. So the next one for the inner plexiform layer, Ben, I think you've got another one of your mnemonics here to help us with the various cell layers. I did not invent this. <laughs> inner, so the, there's the inner plexiform layer and then the inner nuclear layers. This is the space where that it all goes to hell between your TV and the wall. So sometimes you may be asked what resides within the interplexiform layer. The mnemonic I like is in a bag. So in is like interplexiform layer. Be careful that it's not mis, uh, misidentified for in is an internuclear though. Pink bag maybe? In a pink bag. I love it. In your pink bag, P for plexiform and BAG is the mnemonic. So it's bipolar, amicrine, and ganglion cells. Uh, the ganglion cells we already talked about, those make the nerve fiber layer that we know and love. The bipolar cells are what carries the information from the photoreceptors up to the ganglion cells. The endocrine cells essentially help with image processing so they can modulate the signals between cones and rods and help you with um, line and contrast detection and such. And they are, as far as I know, still an active area of study. So after the plexiform layers, then it's usually the nuclear ones, right? So where are we at now? The internuclear layer. Okay. So this is just where cell bodies live. Right, so all their nuclei actually live in this layer. And if you want a mnemonic for the components of the inner nuclear layer, we have one which is where Bob Muller hides away. So Bob is for B, which stands for bipolar. Muller stands for the Mueller cells. H is hides for horizontal. And away is A for amacrine. So the bipolar, Mueller, horizontal, and amacrine cells live in the inner nuclear layer. If that mnemonic helps you to remember that something inner nuclear can mean whatever you want it to mean in this context, it's not a political statement. It's just a mnemonic. Now, another way to remember it anatomically without using a mnemonic is that we have to go up a layer to the um, interplexiform layer where you had the bag, so bipolar, amacrine, and ganglion cells. We already know where the ganglion cells live. That's in the ganglion cell layer right above that. So that means, you know, the bipolar and amacrine cells must then live in an adjacent layer to the interplexiform layer, which would be the inner nuclear layer. And we'll go into the other two denizens of the internuclear layer in a bit. So past the interplexiform and internuclear, then there's the middle limiting membrane that we're just going to discredit and discard here. Next, afterwards, you can probably guess it's another plexiform layer and it's further away. So it's the outer plexiform layer, but it's got another name to it. This one's for you, boss. It's Henley's fiber layer, and it runs obliquely as it approaches the fovea, so it's coming in sort of at an angle. They sort of splay out like a fan. That also is responsible for why 
this on fluorescein angiography shows up in a petaloid pattern when there's cystoid macular edema. Because the fluid is following along those oblique um, fibers in the outer plexiform layer. In the outer nuclear layer, we've got three more cell types. The bipolar cells, photoreceptors themselves, and the horizontal cells. And I think you found another mnemonic for us, right? So, it, get this, that's BPH. It's like, you know that condition where it's hard to pee out? So okay. if you can remember, the bipolar photoreceptor and horizontal cells live in the outer nuclear layer because BPH makes it hard to pee out. What's up to the outer nuclear layer? Do we believe in this one? This limiting membrane? I mean, it's real. All right, you talk about it. I mean, it's like the, no, it's just like the <laughs> external limiting membrane or the outer limiting membrane. I think there's like eight names for this thing. Is this where the Mueller cells hit meet the photoreceptors? The only thing that it helps you remember is it proves to you that the Mueller cells span the entire retina. Because one end of the Mueller cell makes the ILM, and then the other end makes the XLM, so it spans a whole segment. And then we have the photoreceptors. Clinically, this is a pretty interesting zone, too, because you see all sorts of uh, retinal dystrophies and even some of the white dot syndromes affecting this junction or zone or whatever it is you want to call it. This is that really crisp-looking, nice line just beneath all the uh, layers we've talked about on your OCT. So at least on OCT, there's three segments that can be considered the photoreceptors. Along, of course, with the actual cell bodies of the photoreceptors in the outer nuclear layer like we just mentioned. The first is the ISOS junction. That's below the um, external limiting membrane. Now, some people call it the ellipsoid zone because a recent retina consensus meeting came to an agreement that this actually represented the ellipsoid part of the inner segments. In either case, a lot of literature still refers to it as the ISOS junction or the ellipsoid zone for, so for now, consider the two synonymous. Below that, then, is the outer segments um, or the outer segment tips. And then there's another bright band below that that's considered to be the interdigitation zone. That's where the outer segments interdigitate with the RPE, which we'll talk about in a bit. It's important to know about the photoreceptors and where to find it, um, especially in certain clinical scenarios. For example, photopsias, or the sensation of flashes of light, is usually due to a problem at the photoreceptors. So when someone has photopsias, one should look for evidence of traction at the photoreceptors or inflammation, infection, or ischemia. So, so then, like last, but not least, is the RP and Bruch's membrane complex. This is I mean, really important because it's the site where macular degeneration, as well as other choroidal or uh, macular diseases, can, can affect the retina. Uh, we won't. This isn't going to be a review of macular degeneration, but I think it's important to remember that there's a number of fundamental functions of the RPE, including the RPE absorbs light, so this helps um, to reduce scattering within the eye. It's not just the RPE, by the way. There's lutein and xanthine, like we mentioned before, does it too. But uh, the RPE is certainly uh, vital for that. It phagocytosis, or I mean, it eats the rod and cone outer segments, so it's important in regenerating those outer segments in the, um, the transduction cycle of light with the photoreceptors. It forms that blood ocular barrier, 
it maintains a separable space and electrical gradient. So uh, it, it has a pump-like action to keep the retina attached, but it also stabilizes the electrical gradient within the subretinal space. And that action made by sodium-potassium pumps on the inner side of the RP forms the basis of EOG, which, to remind you, EOG compared to ERG, where ERG is you know, picks up the electroactivity of the neural uh, cells in the retina. EOG, which stands for... Electrooculography. That really helps measure the activity of the RPE. You know, when you first hear about that, it sounds like it shouldn't work because the RPE doesn't have... doesn't. It's not a neuron, it shouldn't have an electrical signal, but because it maintains the electrical gradient within the subretinal space, it does have an electric potential. So that's how it's measured, and that's why EOG is a thing... That can actually work. So we're done, we, right, Andrew? That's we, it. Wait, 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 wait. Underneath the RPE, also, there's this choriocapillaris. Oh yeah, there's the whole choroid. That's right. That's a thing. The choriocapillaris is just that area of the smaller vascular network. Beneath them, there are the deep choroid, composed of two more layers that are eponymous. There are the Sattler and Inhaler's layer. So those are the three layers of the choroid. Choriocapillaris. Sattler's and Haller's layer. Okay. Were we supposed to talk about anything else? Oh, attachments. We're yeah. still so attached to this topic, I see. But but I'm tush. So you're a terrible person. Why 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 do we why do we care where the retina and cord are attached? Aren't they just like tacked down to the retina, like to the back of the eye? Like why? With gorilla glue, Ben. Oh. That's that's right. So Show's over. knowing anatomically where the retina and choroid attach can help you differentiate um, detachments of the retina and choroid uh, clinically. Where is the retina attached, Andrew? It's attached at the nerve as well as the aura serrata, way out there. And that's why your detachments end up looking like a funnel pattern. And the choroid is it's like pretty similarly attached. Remember, this is part of the uvea. So it's attached at the scleral spur, then the vortex veins, like the inner kind of lips of the vortex veins, and the nerve. So it basically has like one extra attachment. It's attached anteriorly still and the nerve still. There's another attachment site to the vortex veins, which to remind you are, you know, around in the periphery, like 20 millimeters back from the aura serrata. That extra spot where it's attached, instead of giving you a funnel when you have a coral attachment, will give you... Like classically, what they say is like a baseball stitch, but really anything in that area. Um, like, you know, if you have something between the nerve and the vortex vein, you'll just get this little bump there. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Ben, how you can tell the difference on physical exam between a choroidal detachment and a retinal detachment, but you just mentioned it very distinctly. Which create your baseball stitch, right? That's what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. It kind of looks like a, on, on like a B scan. It'll look like a baseball stitch. Ah, uh, B scan, right. When you're actually examining the fundus, the retina will be clear. If it's a choroidal detachment, you should be able to see that pigmented choroid um, opposed to the retina, so it won't be as clear. But sometimes you don't have as clear a view as you want or as good a view as you want to the fundus, so knowing these attachments obviously still helps not only looking at it, because you can see the funnel versus baseball stitch sort of detachment when you look, but um, also if you have to rely on things like ultrasonography. The um, other thing that's helpful is that the choroid attaches a little bit beyond the aura, like the retina just attaches to the aura. 
and the coroid attaches a little beyond the aura up to this little spur. So if someone has a coroid attachment and you're looking at them and you can see aura without having to scleral depress them or anything, that suggests that it's a coroidal detachment because the coroid is essentially depressing the retina for you, which is why you'd be able to see the aura. All right, well. And that's all we have for retina fundamentals. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with the number four. You can also leave us any questions, comments, or corrections. We'd love to hear them. And it helps us to rate and review us on iTunes. And a deep thank you to all the retina faculty and fellows at the Yale Department of Ophthalmology, as well as the West Haven VA. Sources used for this podcast include the BCSC for retina, as well as Ryan's retina. And thank you for supporting us by listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thank you, Jasmine.